I've always had a special soft spot for the 50s, and I, I realized that writing the book, I was writing definitely as an advocate and even in a defensive posture because people are who weren't there and don't know it are so ready to dismiss the 50s in terms of a series of stereotypes, bland, uh, conformity-ridden, consumerist, a dull Eisenhower prosperity, just a boring period. And while that stereotypes always have their basis in truth, I don't feel that that at all reflects the complexity of the period. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's that time of year again. Nitrateville moderator Bruce Calvert and I pick the top 10 in physical media released in the past year. And the 50s have a reputation as stayed and conformist. Film professor and author Foster Hirsch suggests otherwise in a downright biblical epic-sized book, Hollywood and the Movies of the 50s. Hey, Hepcats and Daddios, be sure you rock around the clock with every new episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, it's real gone. Greetings, people of Earth. We bring you moving images of the past brought to life on metal discs. Greetings, Earthling Bruce. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Mike. So this is our fifth year of picking the best physical media releases of, of vintage films. And, you know, in the past years, we've always started out having to make the case that, you know, physical media isn't dead. It's still good to collect your movies or whatever. And I feel like this is the year that the world caught up with us. Thanks to visionary geniuses like David Zaslav, we've all been reminded that just because something's streaming today, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to see it tomorrow. Yeah, about a week ago, Max announced that they were dropping all the Looney Tunes cartoons starting January 1st. And then after a couple of days of outcry from fans, they announced that, oops, it was a mistake and that wasn't supposed to be on the list. So I thought that was funny. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's like they, their whole management style seems to be based on infuriating people and then backtracking, which, you know, is a, is a great model. It's actually kind of funny that people have suddenly discovered that, you know, streaming availability isn't permanent. You know what else wasn't permanent? Movies on TV for like the first 70 years of television. <laughs> You know, we, I mean, we all grew up in that world knowing that if they're going to show King Kong tonight, you better watch it tonight because you might not get to see it again for a year or more. So, you know, that, that was just normal. And then we entered this world where you could actually own a movie and not get busted for it, like Roddy McDowell or somebody. 
and that lasted for a while. But then everybody was like, "Oh, I can. It'll just be on. It'll be in the cloud. It'll it'll be so easy to see it then." Uh, well, yeah, until it isn't. And before, 20 years ago, directors like Christopher Nolan and Guillermo del Toro would have been saying, go to the theater to see my movie, because that's where you get the great experience. But now they're saying, you better buy my movie on physical media, because if you're hoping to stream it, it may be there one month and then it's going to be gone. Not only the things they pull off streaming, but the things that never quite make it to streaming. I mean, you know, Warner's has invented this new model. There used to be straight to video, and now they have straight to tax write-off. And no one, you know, no one gets to see the movie at all. So, and Disney now owns 20th Century Fox. So, mo- unless it's something that was a huge hit, we're probably not going to see a lot of Fox films on streaming. It's a world where we're not sure where the availability of things is necessarily, which is just like the world was for most of recent history. So, uh, anyway, go out and buy discs. They're good for you. Once again, we have our, our top 10 in, in uh, physical media, vintage films, films going back a certain ways, and I don't know that we define it any more explicitly than that. I'm going to start not with a silent or even a, a black and white movie. I'm going to start with a very much a color movie. Uh, the last few years, we had uh, a couple of two-strip Technicolor horror films that were restored by Scott McQueen, who was then at uh, UCLA. He's since retired. Um, and now we have another science fiction movie. It's not actually in two-strip Technicolor, but uh, it is in an interesting color process. It's in super cine color, and it looks fantastic. If you like the color green, this is the movie for you. And it is Invaders from Mars from 1953. Invaders from Mars. He saw them land from outer space. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. (laughs) Father turned against son. People changed into strange, weird animals. A general of the army becomes a saboteur. Trusted police turned into arsonists. It's kind of a science fiction movie for kids, but it's also kind of a movie about a kid's outlook on the world. And I think that's actually the most interesting part of it. Aliens land, Martians I should say, near the house of this kid and... Then suddenly the adults start acting weird around him, and I mean, there's there's definitely a uh, air of this sort of thing happens to a lot of kids. I mean, their parents start fighting or get it, you know, start heading toward divorce or whatever, and your world is suddenly very different. Well, in this case, the aliens represent the world that's that's suddenly very different, but. Uh, it's also just way cool to look at. It's directed by William Cameron Menzies, who designed Gone with the Wind and other things like that. And it has a very distinctive uh, look to it. It kind of reminded me of certain silent films that were shot on studio-built sets of like a farmhouse or something like that, where you kind of create this whole world. And it's all kind of out this kid's window. You know, he can see where the aliens are, but he doesn't dare go over there, that sort of thing. So it's a very... It's a very striking film in that regard, in some ways kind of dreamlike. When we meet the Martians in it, they're sort of like giant teddy bears. 
um, <laughs> including, as many reviewers point out, you can kind of see the zippers on the back of, of their costumes. In a weird way, it sort of is like George Powell's War of the Worlds crossed with the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T or some, some kind of fantasy film like that. Yeah, I saw this at Cinecon last year, and I was blown away how beautiful it looked. I mean, I, at first I, th I hadn't seen it before, and I thought this must be a big-budget film, but it actually was not. And by the end of the movie, they kind of seemed to run through the same cave passages over and over mm -hmm. again, and I, and I realized that it wasn't. But it really, really looks good, and like you say, the, seeing everything from the child's point of view makes a, a really cool – science fiction not quite horror movie but i mean he's worried about, his whole world has changed yeah yeah uh yeah i know you can definitely tell if you're paying attention that like the uh the police station set and the laboratory set are the same set they've just been dressed slightly differently but you know it, ingenious design i mean low budgetness doesn't have to mean ed wood in 50s sci-fi so you know it, wor it works well here well, number nine is not a single film but it's a collection from kino lately kino lorber's been releasing box sets with several films from one star all grouped together and one of their most interesting ones is the anime wong collection if you aren't familiar with Ms. Wong, she was an American-born actress of Chinese descent who became a mid-tier star in the silent era and in the 1930s, despite the strong racism at American studios at the time. She was famously passed over for the Chinese film or film story The Good Earth in 1936, and Louise Rainier played the lead in, in the film in Yellowface and won an Oscar for it. And Wong even went to England for a few years because she was frustrated with the parts that she was getting at American studios. So the set contains three Paramount B films, and they're all pretty good. Island of Lost Men from 1939 is really a bonkers film with Anthony Quinn about a group of people who are stranded in a Southeast Asian compound that's ruled over by a crime lord played by J. Carroll Nash. Try to escape, and Nash will sick the crocodiles or the natives on you. And this one will really keep you guessing as to who can escape and who will die trying. Huh. And then she has a surprising, very non-stereotype role in The King of Chinatown, also from 1939. She plays a brilliant surgeon and has two different men vying for her affections. Wong's doctor saves crime lord Akim Tamaroff's life, and she's worried about a gang war breaking out. Sidney Toller had appeared in the first of his many Charlie Chan movies the year before, and here he plays Wong's father, but he's not very convincing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but all of the other Chinese characters are played by Asians, although not necessarily Chinese people, and Wong is off the screen for half the film as it concentrates on gangland activity. But her, her character has one of the happiest endings that you will ever see for a Chinese character in a classic Hollywood film. Huh. My favorite from the set, though, is Dangerous to Know from 1938. Akeem Tamaroff plays a gangster model on Al Capone. As his gangland power grows, he craves respectability. So even though his mistress, Anna Mae Wong, keeps him perfectly happy, he starts to pursue a society woman played by Gail Patrick. Wong seems to be a minor character for the first 45 minutes, but then she absolutely takes over the film in a stunning climax. All three of these films have been remastered in 2K. 
although dangerous to know isn't quite as sharp as the other two, so may not have been from the original camera negative. All three films have commentary tracks, and the discs feature trailers for other films featuring the same performers that appear in the films. Speaking of Paramount, let's continue with number eight. You know, talking about the late 30s, at a certain point, the censors, you know, the Breen office, basically came out against gangster movies, that it, we, they were glorifying the gangster. So you either had James Cagney playing a policeman going after gangsters, like in G-Men, or you had to find other genres. And one of the things that the studios tended to do at that point was kind of go back to the silent era and start remaking a lot of the swashbuckling hits of that era. You know, you started certainly with Errol Flynn. Um, you had eventually Tyrone Power doing The Mark of Zorro. And one of the big hits was Selznick's production of The Prisoner of Zenda with Ronald Coleman uh, playing the role that Ramon Navarro had played it, you know, about 20 years before. So he did that, and then it's like, well, what's what's he do next? Well, Paramount looked to a hit of the early 20s, If I Were King, which had starred William Farnham. Uh, it's It was basically a big stage hit in the late 19th century about the uh, the poet Francois Villon and King Louis IX, who's sort of a wily tyrant, but not entirely unsympathetic, uh, and... In this version, Coleman plays Villon, and Basil Rathbone actually got an Oscar nomination for his role as Louis IX. I suppose you're wondering what I'm going to do with you. Your Majesty is not the imaginative type, I can almost guess. Don't you think that's rather a dangerous tone to use under the circumstances? What danger is there? Beyond hanging, what indeed? <laughs> Compared with some of the choicer forms of amusement, hanging becomes a pleasure. Hmm? I could have you boiled in oil, or sliced, or drawn and quartered, and there are other tortures that for the moment escape me. Yeah, I, I, I beg your majesty's pardon. You should. Especially as I am not going to hang you yet. Your majesty. No, 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 no. Don't get emotional. I am nothing if not a just man. Last night you did me a slight favor by ridding me of my chief traitor. Oh, quite unintentionally, my friend. Nevertheless, you shall have your reward. Your majesty will never know my gratitude. No, I probably won't. So this is a fun, somewhat talky swashbuckler. I mean, Coleman is not as athletic as someone like Errol Flynn, so there's not a lot of action per se in it. But it's a it's an entirely enjoyable film. Rathbone is really good in this. Uh, my wife just pointed out that he was nominated for Oscars twice and lost to Walter Brennan both times. Mm -hmm. uh, too bad, but uh, but he's good in this. But one of the things I really liked, I had seen this on a Universal Vault DVD some years ago. It looked like a TV print had been transferred straight to DVD. You know, I thought, well, this would, sure would be nice to see in in a good quality transfer because the production looked quite expensive and handsomely designed and all that. Shot by Theodore Sparkool, who did Diary of a Lost Girl and other things like that. Uh, but, you know, what are the odds that anybody's ever going to make a new transfer of this fairly obscure 1938 movie well they did really shows off what a nice looking picture this is and it's just a it's a uh, it's a fun movie that's a little unknown uh but well worth rediscovering at this point and who put it out oh uh it's from kino all right number seven which i believe is also paramount we're in a paramount uh run here yeah, but different, different distributor. Well, I first discovered Raymond Griffith and Walter Kerr's great book, The Silent Clowns, as a teenager. But Griffith's comedies have been difficult to see for decades. 
Many of his shorts and features are lost films. Paths to Paradise was available on VHS, and that film and You'd Be Surprised were available from Grapevine Video, transferred from 16mm print, so they didn't look that good. But now Ben Modell and his Undercrank Productions have given us beautiful restorations of both films in 2K from 35mm prints with great scores by Mr. Modell. Paths to Paradise from 1925 is a laugh riot, and Betty Compson gets top billing in this film. While she had dozens of romantic roles in the 20s, she did start her career at the Al Christie Comedy Studios, and she's fantastic in this film, too. Raymond and Betty play con artists who con each other and then try to steal a huge diamond necklace while outwitting the police. One con after the other will keep you laughing, and they have plenty of close calls. Unfortunately, the last reel of this film does not survive, but the film comes to a stopping point, and then the ending is described with titles. You'd Be Surprised from 1926 is almost as good, and it's very clever. At a party on an exclusive yacht, the district attorney is murdered. The police show up, including the coroner, Raymond Griffith, who's dressed in a tuxedo because he has tickets to the theater, and the show starts in an hour. When all evidence points to Dorothy Sebastian, Griffith interrogates and fools the witnesses and suspects until he can correctly identify the real culprit. Jules Furthman and Robert Benchley worked on the screenplay, and it's filled with witty dialogue delivered by title cards. Both films have outstanding music scores by Ben Modell. There's also a 12-minute featurette on Raymond Griffith's career that was put together by Ben, Steve Massa, and producer Crystal Queen. In the interest of full disclosure, I have a big collection of Raymond Griffith photos, and I provided images that were used for the disc cover and in the featurette. But Ben, Crystal, Steve, Thad, and everyone else did all the hard work. <laughs> this is a great set. It's a lot of fun. And it's one of those things that it's just nice to see that some of these movies, as they pass out of copyright, you know, are getting that kind of serious attention. I think a lot of us feared that you know, we would never see good copies of things ever again because, you know, it would be a race to the bottom to put out the cheapest possible version of things. And that's not really proving to be the case. People are doing nice restorations of things that have been available one way or another. But as the ability to do that becomes easier and easier and more practical for people to basically do on their desktop, uh, we're getting some really nice versions of some of these things. <laughs> All right, number six. You know, if I was asked to name my Mount Rushmore of great filmmakers, I think one of the spots would have to actually go to two guys, uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. They're rightly celebrated for films that kind of lyrically depict the way that modern English life uh, is still connected to kind of the wildness of, of places like England or like Tibet and Black Narcissus or whatever. And it really started for Powell. They weren't a team yet. Uh, with a 1938 film called The Edge of the World. Powell had read a story in the newspaper about an island in the Hebrides where the inhabitants simply asked to be taken off the island. Uh, you know, modern life had its obvious appeals to people. And raising sheep on this rock in the middle of the water was just not nearly as appealing to certainly the younger people on the island. So eight years later, he 
actually made a movie of it called The Edge of the World, uh, filmed it in, uh, not in the Hebrides, but in the Shetland Islands in the North Sea, but beautifully shot in this remote, forbidding place, uh, very well edited together in kind of an Eisensteinian fashion. Uh, you know, a moving film about the challenges of a traditional life for these people in a you know, in the modern world and, you know, seeking health care and things like that. So kind of a pseudo-documentary film, although it, in fact, uses actors. Uh, it has Finley Curry and John Laurie, both of whom would be in uh, I Know Where I'm Going a, a decade later. Just kind of a lovely film. It's interesting. It's really in contrast to the later ways that Powell would treat uh, these kind of remote places where he would be very poetic about them. I mean, there's a there are clear good reasons to want to get off this island in this movie. Um, anyway, 40 years after making the film, which really kickstarted his career, he uh, went back to the island that it was filmed on uh, with John Laurie, in fact, and made a documentary called Return to the Edge of the World. It's actually the last film he ever made, and it's much more, you know, sympathetic to life in that remote place. Uh, anyway, really interesting uh, films, probably not seen by many people who are otherwise familiar with Powell and Pressburger's work. Uh, and a nice return to releasing for our friends at Milestone Film and Video. And I say our friends because Dennis Doris of Milestone has been on the podcast a couple of times, uh, but they haven't released anything for a couple of years. And so it was nice to have them back, not only with this, but they also released a Herbert Brennan uh, silent with Pola Negri called The Spanish Dancer. And they've got some other things coming out in the next year. Um, so good to have them back good to have a really nice copy of this film it's an important addition to this year's releases sounds interesting all right and now another film that we we talked about on nitrateville radio number five i had not seen it no one had seen it in good condition uh, for other years. than a, a bad 16 millimeter print that missed uh that had the, the ending missing uh from the film so no. Well, that's the one that ended up on YouTube. The only element, the only surviving element was at George Eastman Museum, and they'd had it for decades, and thank the merciful bloodstained gods, they made a preservation negative on it, a black and white neg. And when we checked with them and learned that they had the first five reels of original tinted nitrate, albeit with occasional decomp, uh, we, we just jumped on that. And they could not have been more cooperative. I was familiar with film restorer Robert Harris's work because I've seen his restorations of Lawrence of Arabia, Rear Window, and Vertigo. And James Monkowski has been working with Francis Ford Coppola for a long time and is Coppola's official archivist. These guys have teamed up and brought us an unexpected restoration of The Johnstown Flood from 1926. Now, this film was loosely based on the real Johnstown flood of 1889 when a poorly maintained dam burst in Pennsylvania and destroyed an entire town. The film stars beefy George O'Brien as an engineer and features Janet Gaynor in her first really big role as a young woman secretly in love with O'Brien. The film has comedian Max Davidson in a mostly dramatic role as a Jewish businessman who is initially skeptical of the danger. 
The final 20 minutes feature some spectacular special effects for the 1920s as waves of water destroy many standing sets. The film features an original dramatic score by the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra. It's a tinted 35 millimeter print. It was remastered in 4K and it, the disc is loaded with extras. And the neatest extra is a series of stereo photos of the original flood taken in 1889. And the disc comes with a pair of red and blue 3D glasses so you can watch them on any TV. And I know I must have spent 30 minutes just clicking through those going, <laughs> wow, I cannot believe they're destroyed so much. Yeah, no, this was, this was a fun movie, although the John Town Flood has been viewable recently. Uh, this is a, a much more coherent and certainly better looking edition uh, with a really nice score to it. So well worth checking out. And again, a good example of the kind of you know homegrown restoration project of very high quality that we're starting to get from, from different people. Um, I would say actually so far Invaders from Mars, the Raymond Griffith set, and this one all qualify as kind of fitting that bill. I don't, I don't know. I think Harris and Monkowski, I mean, they're a level of professionalism above. I mean, this sure. is their bread and butter job. So, but yeah, it, it looks fantastic. And then the score is great too. Right. I guess I, what I'm saying is, you know, nobody, nobody's paying them to do this one. It, That's um, true. Yeah. Other than, than all of us by buying it, which it certainly is worth doing. So, all right, number four, speaking of uh, labels that are, are our friends, um, Flickr Alley d was involved with two major restoration projects this year, released them. Um, one of them that we considered for the list is Foolish Wives, the Eric von Stroheim film. Uh, most of us know that from a early 70s restoration by Arthur Lennig. This is basically a new try at that. So that was that was very nice. But come on, we're not here to talk about von Stroheim and his depressing, weird uh, outlook on the world. Let's see some Laurel and Hardy. So the other big release from Flickr Alley was Laurel and Hardy Year One, which was done with Blackhawk Films and Lobster Films. This has been in our mind forever. Uh, because of the, our connection with the Black Hawk Film Library. And uh, obviously, Black Hawk was the home of Lauren and Hardy, among other things. So uh, we've, we've been thinking of doing this for years. We've been collecting, assembling, locating material all over the world for, well, for, for the last 35 years. And, uh, and, uh, and now, you know, the time has come. That, of course, was Serge Brownberg of Lobster and Blackhawk on a recent episode of Nitrateville Radio. The idea, as the title Year One suggests, is to get good editions of all their silent films out. And that's a real challenge because the last owners of their silent films really neglected them and lost a lot of high-quality material. So this has been a matter of finding good prints all around the world and piecing things back together. And a really a, a, an impressive work of, of not only restoration, but basically rescue, you know, salvation of, of material that was really on the verge of being lost for all time. So this is this gives us how Laurel and Hardy came together uh, and finally became Laurel and Hardy in 1927, the first year that has passed out of copyright in their 
careers. Yeah, I uh, I really love this disc too. I'm a huge Laurel and Hardy fan. I'm actually in the Sons of the Desert tent for the Dallas Fort Worth area, and I have about half of these films on 16 millimeter. I have them all on the 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 allegedly lost films of Laurel and Hardy yeah. DVDs that look terrible that came out 20 years ago. And I was originally just going to watch them with the commentary because Randy Scredvet has written the Bible several times on Laurel and Hardy, <laughs> and I just wanted to hear what he said. But I hadn't seen all of Lucky Dog because of the prints I'd seen before were only like half of the film. So I watched that, and Neil Brand's score was really good for that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just watch a few more of them. And I mean, I was really struck by how much better they look than my either my 60 millimeter prints or those those muddy DVDs that came out a long time ago. They're all worth watching. And we get a bonus Max Davidson one because they have a cameo in one Max Davidson film. So keep your fingers crossed, and maybe after they're done with Law and Hardy, they will do Max Davidson. So. <laughs> we can dream, certainly. Uh, who knew this was going to be- become the Max Davidson episode? That's right. All right, number three. Well, number three is a Todd Browning set. Todd Browning Sideshow Shockers from Criterion features three new restorations of Browning films. All three have been remastered in 2K. The Unknown from 1927 stars Lon Chaney Sr. as a sideshow knife thrower who must conceal his identity because he's wanted for murder. He straps his arms tightly to his chest and impersonates an armless knife thrower. He's the perfect match for Joan Crawford because her character has been assaulted by men and she recoils when a man tries to touch her. Things get complicated when Crawford's father discovers Cheney's secret and the circus strongman played by Norman Carey takes a shine to Crawford. This film has one of Cheney's greatest performances, especially at the end of the film. I mean, he is just, I mean, that's silent film acting at the end of the film, Cheney's Cheney's performance there. But there's two other films on there, too. Freaks from 1932 is an early sound film where little person Harry Earls is attracted to Cleopatra, a stunt writer played by Olga Baklanova. She's really in a relationship with Hercules, the strongman, so they decide to have her marry Earls and then poison him to death to get his inheritance. The film almost entirely occurs backstage at a circus sideshow and features at least a dozen handicapped people from Siamese twins to a bearded lady to an armless lady. While the film is very sympathetic to these people with physical limitations, it was a huge failure on release because audiences at the time didn't really understand horrific films. It's not a straight horror film as there's comic scenes too, but it's still a unique and very remarkable film. And third, we get The Mystic from 1925, which features Aline Pringle as a fake medium. She teams up with Conway Turrell to build rich people out of their money by having the spirit of their departed loved ones appear. It isn't nearly as good as the first two films, but contains many elements from other Browning films like The Unholy Three, and it's really rare, never been released in video before. The Unknown was recently restored by the George Eastman House and has 10 minutes of previously missing footage added. It has a great score by Dr. Philip Carley and The Mystic has an unconventional but creepy score by Dean Hurley. The Unknown and Freaks have a commentary track by Browning biographer David J. Skull, and there's a short featurette on The Mystic. And there's several other extras, including a great production photo gallery for Freaks and an hour-long documentary on Todd Browning. Hmm. 
I saw the restoration of the unknown at Portanone in 2022 and spoke to the restoration team at George Eastman Museum about what's different in this new version. The whole opening of the film with the little boy up in the bell tower with the older gentleman looking down at the, at the circus and then getting money from that older gentleman to go see the circus. Then shots, once they're inside the circus tent, you have all the audience reaction uh, shots that, seem, that have been missing in the French print for decades. Um, there are maybe not full sequences, but um, big chunks. Uh, there's a character named uh, Castro, uh, I believe played by Frank Lanning, who is basically cut out of the French version. And his scenes are back. And there is a scene with a fortune teller uh, reading tarot cards for Joan Crawford that has been completely missing. Other than that, it was just uh, bits of shots here and there. It's still quite a short film, but, uh, you know, it just has has more pace to it. I mean, to me, it's it's the Browning masterpiece, the Browning Cheney masterpiece. So um, this is certainly a, a set well worth getting. And I also have to just commend Criterion, which has not been big on silence, although they've put out some all silence sets, usually in the Eclipse series, you know, from people like Mikio Narusa or uh, Yasujiro Ozu. Um, but this is this is the first kind of big Criterion set that's more silent than not, even if Freaks is the title that will be most familiar to people. So that's cool. Uh, it's nice to see someone you know, sort of joining the ranks of, of doing silent releases as well. So, all right. Another label that has really gone into, uh, gone into releasing vintage films again, um, gets my number two, which is Warner archive. I mean, they were, they were about on the edge of being shut down a few years ago and they've been really busy this year, put out a ton of things, um, I kind of think they're, it's mostly driven by what do we have really good material on, which is certainly not the worst way to pick, uh, movies. And so we get, you know, we get certain things like I thought for a minute about, uh, mentioning the disc they did of Dewberry was a lady with Red Skelton and Lucille Ball, but it's not actually a good movie. It's just a great looking disc. So if you want to see really bright greens and reds and, orange hair on Lucia Ball and stuff like that. You know, it's it's a good disc, but, you know, it's a Red Skelton movie. What do you want? Uh, anyway, uh, the one Warner Archive title that I really want to call out here, uh, and again, it's lucky that they had such gorgeous material, is a movie called One Way Passage. William Powell and Kay Francis play a couple who meet in the tropics, uh, and they both have a secret, which is that they are each not long for this world. She has what Mad Magazine used to call old movie disease, uh, probably tuberculosis or something like that. And he's actually been sentenced for murder. And he's expecting to get the chair if he goes back to America. And so you'll hear, you know, ironic, poignant reflections of their fates when they first meet. What? I'm so sorry. I'm so glad. Such a beautiful drink, too. Yes, paradise cocktail. Seem to be a few drops left. Always the most precious, last few drops. 
That's luck. Yeah. Uh, my name is Dan. Mine's Joan. Hello, Joan. Hello, Dan. May we uh, drink to our meeting? We should. Here's, here's hail and farewell. Well, that seems a bit ruthless. Let's say, uh... Our beaters, sir. Off with you, You know, this really has an almost silent film quality of how the Doom romance is portrayed, sort of like the uh, romances in some of the late Frank Borzaghi films like Seventh Heaven or whatever, mixed with some pre-code snappy dialogue and stuff like that. Um, but it's, you know, it's not like a comedy or a cynical film in any way. It really has a kind of sweet, uh, moving feel to it. So, you know, I really, one of my favorite films of the early 30s, and they did a, a really, they got a really nice transfer of it just because I think the material was in very good shape. What's, what's a better setting for an early 30s romance than an ocean liner? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a charming and moving film with great stars in it. Highly recommended. Yeah, that one's definitely on my Christmas list this year. And um, I don't think we mentioned one or archive enough because it seems like they're putting out five or six new Blu-rays every single month. And they're not just a film. They usually have cartoons added or if they have a featurette on the cartoon or they'll throw in a, you know, a Vodafone short or something like that. And so their discs are really uh, top quality. All right, it's time for our number one. Uh, for the second year in a row, we wind up with a number one that was released just days after we recorded the previous edition of, of our top ten in physical media. So we've been waiting a year to do this one, folks, but here it is. Yeah, but there was no question that as soon as it came out, it had to definitely be in the top ten because it's a monument to film restoration of little-known films. I can almost guarantee you that um, unless you work at an archive, you probably haven't seen any of these films before. It was a collaboration by archivists Maggie Hennenfield, Laura Horak, and Elif Rongen Kanicki. I hope Kainachi. I got her name. Kanachi. Plus at least a dozen archives. Cinema's First Nasty Women contains 99 silent films that are all rare, previously unseen films that feature feminist characters in either seriously dramatic roles or in broad slapstick. These ladies are not cute ingenues who are just there to be won by a male character. As we went to different archives to watch films for, in my case, originally my dissertation on cross-dressed women in American silent cinema, and Maggie, likewise, for her dissertation that became her book on uh, women comedians in early cinema, and Elif on all kinds of um, women actors who came through um, the iFilm archives, and one in particular that I know she'll want to talk about. Um, we were just, we just felt like we had to share these to the world. You know, they were so amazing, and they just went against all of these preconceptions people have about silent cinema that the only comedians were men or that they had, um, you know, more conservative gender mores back in the olden days um, 
or that, you know, kids these days are the ones who invented kind of queer and trans uh, gender and sexual expressions. So uh, we found so many incredible counterexamples that that we were able to watch by flying to an archive and making an appointment, you know, paying a bunch of money for a hotel, etc. Um, but we really wanted to be able to share them with the world, with the public and with uh, students and teachers. That was Laura Horak on Nitrateville Radio last year. Many of these films were a revelation to me, and I've seen a lot of silent films. There are a ton of slapstick shorts that are really short, five to ten minutes, and some of the best of these feature the French comedian Leotine as she gleefully causes destruction to everything around her. Cunegond, who was actually played by an English comedian named Little Chrissia, also is featured in several fun shorts. Included are films showing women rebelling against doing household chores or being forced into, into traditional women's roles at home or at work. When we get to disc number three, it features female characters who must dress as men to get their job done or to save the day. And there are a few films where men impersonate women, usually to make fun of them. So it may be illegal to show these films to children in several states these days, <laughs> but these films show how ridiculous it is to ban drag shows. While some of these films are comedies, there are also some westerns and serials where the heroine has to do the, quote, man's job, unquote. And disc number four presents female tricksters and includes two feature films. The best feature is Phil for Short from 1919, where Evelyn Greeley plays Demophilia, a tomboy daughter of a Greek-language professor. This film is witty and charming and doesn't seem that dated. The men in the film are doofy, and Phil has no problem changing her identity from a woman to a man and back and forth to win the man that she loves. Another favorite of mine was What's the World Coming To? from 1926, which is a Hal Roach farce comedy starring Clyde Cook where the entire cast cross-dresses as the opposite sex. So Clyde is the house husband while his high-powered businesswoman wife, Catherine Grant, stays late at the office every night. Many of these films have commentary tracks and some of them have more than one commentary. Some of the commentary tracks are actually in Spanish. <laughs> the, the set features a wide range of musical accompaniment from traditional piano to contemporary jazz to experimental. Most of the music was composed and performed by women. Obviously, this set isn't for everybody, but if you like silent film, you like slapstick comedy or feminist films, this is a must-have set. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, the theme is obviously interesting and it shows us very different sides of how women were portrayed in the silent film era. But also, I mean, it's just interesting that the set overwhelmingly is films from the teens and even some from the aughts. You know, you just don't get to see that much from that era. So I'm happy with any theme that gives us an excuse to see a bunch of films from that time. I mean, I just found it interesting to see, you know, a lot of them being around women's roles. You see a lot of kitchens back then. And it's just interesting to me to, me to see how kitchens are put together. Also, a lot of stuff about how you know, women servants were treated and them often getting their comeuppance on some guy who's giving them grief. You know, just a lot of things that are interesting of giving you a picture of that time and how movies, you know, expressed their viewpoint on that era. 
um, a really interesting set that's rewarding in many, many ways. I mean, we sp- I spoke on the podcast with the three main curators, and it's it's a heroic work of scholarship. There's a lot of you know heroic things in in this year's list, and this one seems to me to be the top of the the line for that. And it's not all slapstick comedy. I mean, there'll be six or seven comedies in a row, and then there'll be a short film from like 1910 about a woman who catches her lover having an affair, so she murders him. Yeah. (laughs) But I guess that's the the Scandinavians were serious about that. So yeah, this this is a great set uh, from Kino. We should point out Um, started as a retrospective at Portnone. Uh, which is why the title references a quote that otherwise is pretty much forgotten from Donald Trump uh, about nasty women. But the, uh, you know, it just has gone, has kind of taken on a life of its own. I actually heard that there might be a disc five in the works at some point. So we'll see if that happens. But for now, you got 99 films that should keep you busy for a while. And especially if, if you if you've seen everything that Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd and Langdon and stuff have done, I mean, I hadn't seen very many French comedies other than Max Linder. So, I mean, this is like two or three hours of French comedy shorts, plus a lot of other stuff. That was music for the Rembrandt of the Rue Le Pic, a 1910 French comedy, composed by Dana Reason, who was also the musical director for the Complete Cinema's first Nasty Women set. Links for our top ten in physical media will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. You can also find conversations with several of the people behind these releases in past episodes of Nitrateville Radio, so check those out. That's it. Keep the candles up. Keep them way up high. Okay, Byron. This is the image so many have of the 1950s. Happy days, marked by conformity and family values. Levittown on the big screen. But in the movies, the 50s were also this. The judges left town, Harvey's quit, and I'm having trouble getting deputies. People got to talk themselves into law and order before they do anything about it. Maybe because down deep, they don't care. They just don't care. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into. It's no place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You know, talking to you is like pulling teeth. You wear me out. You're a yellow belly chaplain, am I right or wrong? You're not only wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice. I don't want to have to come through back doors or feel lower than other people or apologize for my mother's color. Don't say she can't help her color. 
But I can. I came here to give you these facts. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Oh, madam, I see you're looking at my hands. Would you like me to tell you the little story of left hand and right hand, the tale of good and evil? It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. Them kids is yours? My own flesh and blood. Where's your missus? Foster Hirsch, professor of film at Brooklyn College and author of books on everything from film noir to the method, Woody Allen to Otto Preminger, tells the story of his formative movie decade in Hollywood and the Movies of the 50s, the collapse of the studio system, the thrill of Cinerama, and the invasion of the ultimate body snatcher, television, from Knopf. I spoke with him from New York. First off, I mean, I thought it was interesting that you say you've you've been working on the book for 70 years. Tell me about that. Well, that, that's very dramatic, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yes. I, I, unconsciously working on it for 70 years, working on it for as long as I've been going to the movies. Um, I didn't know I was working on it. Right. <laughs> but as I, as I reflect, uh, I would say the gestation period was that long, yes. And what was your feeling about the 50s as, as a time period when you started working on the book? I've always had a special soft spot for the 50s, and I, I realized that writing the book, I was writing definitely as an advocate and even in a defensive posture because people are, who weren't there and don't know it are so ready to dismiss the 50s in terms of a series of stereotypes, bland, a conformity-ridden consumerist, a dull Eisenhower prosperity, just a boring period. And while that stereotypes always have their basis in truth, I don't feel that that at all reflects the complexity of the period. And I, it's my, it's my, it's my decade. It's the period I grew up. I have a soft spot for it. I like the design and the look of the fifties. And as it recedes. I seem to like it more and more and almost think I'm sort of an apologist for it. You know? Right. <laughs> I'm speaking up for my decade. You know, I mean, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so very much that idea of, oh, that was that innocent, naive time before now when we know everything. And, to you know, the more films that I saw over the years, I mean, it just struck me. I mean, if the, if there's... A surface level of conformity and and expected behavior, it's pretty thin. I mean, most so many films are about that being violated in some way, whether it's you know Jane Wyman dating her gardener in All That Heaven Allows, or it's Mike Mike Hammer blowing up the world, or you know whatever it is. There's you know there's a lot of tension. Just there's buried. a lot of tension, and the the. The claim of this is such a bland, well-adjusted period flies in the face of the evidence we see from the movies that, in <laughs> fact, it was an age of high anxiety. Sure. But, but the important point for me is, I'm as a film historian, I'm convinced that the 50s produced more great films than any other period. Compare it to the junk of today. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, there's almost nothing I like. Um, it's always something wrong in, in, from my point of view. My sensibility is still rooted in that period, but I would say so many of the films from the 50s have passed the test of time. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's years. 
you can't know about the lasting value until, what would you say, 50 years after right. a work has been released? A long time. You have to see what another generation will make of it. That's right. And I would say enough time has passed for, for, for the 50s films so that we can look at them now in that large view of the test of time. And so many of them have passed that test triumphantly. Well, this this is, I mean, it's a massive book, possibly the longest book I've had to read for this podcast so far. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and I mean, so full of riches. I, I, at one point, I was sort of challenging myself to think of a 50s movie that's not mentioned at all in it. And it's not there easy. Are, there are some. I've, there are some omissions. I couldn't include everything. There's some films that I respond to more and, you know, in a more passionate way, others I'm, I, I'm indifferent. Somebody said, "Why didn't you talk more about From Here to Eternity?" And the truth is, I sort of just don't respond to it. Yeah, it's a- I want to like it. I, I see uh, its intelligence and how much it was an adult film for that time. But I didn't respond to it when I saw it in the fifties, and I still don't respond to it. It, it, I don't care for it. I see it's good, but I don't care for it. Well, and I think, too, with a lot of the war-related films, you know, they're made for the audience that had lived that, you know, who had been through the war in some fashion and are wanting to get a perspective on their own experiences, and we're just very far from but that. I, but I would say, yes, that's true. But to pass this test of time that I've been talking about, to pass that test, the film has to rise beyond uh, a specific uh, a specific time period and it's it isn't just about people in the 50s addressing their war experience i, I would going through the best picture oscar winners of the 50s i asked myself that question and i realized that for a contemporary audience the fact that around the world in 80 days won the best picture oscar might be totally mystifying to a 2023 audience. Right. <laughs> Whereas that film played in my hometown of Los Angeles at the Carthay Circle Theater for a record-breaking two and a half years. And now audiences wouldn't, most young audiences wouldn't have the patience to sit through it or, or even wonder how it could have garnered so much attention and admiration in its day. Right. Because it was a travelogue, and people loved yes. seeing those. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. You talk about it as a generation that hadn't really got to travel yet, but of course, in one sense, they had traveled, but maybe only to Anzio or to uh, well, yeah, the Guadalcanal or something. So, yes, but certainly not with the, the frequency and the obsessiveness that we travel today. Sure. So the Cinerama travelogues, which I'm old enough to remember. Um, hit a nerve for the 50s audience because it took them to places they hadn't been. Who had been to Venice in 1953? You couldn't count on everybody having been there the way you can today. It just wasn't done. It was, it was a different era. And also, I, I spent a lot of time on the road, and it is one of the most important films ever produced in Hollywood. Hard as it is to believe, that film saved Hollywood. 
Right. It was a make-or-break debut of CinemaScope. It was unbelievably successful at the box office. A biblical epic about the early days of Christ, about right. uh, early Christians, unimaginable as a, a blockbuster uh, in the current market. And I can't even, I'm doing repertory uh, screenings at a number of theaters throughout the country. I can't get any of the repertory programmers to even consider showing it. Right. <laughs> and it's probably the single most important film of the 50s. It saved the industry. Maybe there's a double bill of the jazz singer in the robe that you could do somewhere. <laughs> Someone might go for that. Can't, 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 can't convince anyone. Yeah. Um, I admire it enormously, and I think it's, it, it's, um, it's, it's dismissed unfairly. There's no interest in the ancient world epic of the 50s, a genre I love, but very few others share my enthusiasm. I know that. No, I love uh, the Ten Commandments, and I remember dragging my friends to see it one time, and they're like, oh, it's some boring biblical epic. What are we going to go see that for? But it isn't. Like, it isn't boring. It may be a biblical epic, but it is not boring. It is not so. boring. Mr. DeMille was a very good storyteller. Yeah. And, I mean, you even make fun of the line that, to me, is so charming because it's so indelibly ridiculous. Oh, Moses, Moses, yeah. Moses. <laughs> yeah, and, of course, spoken by Ann Baxter, you know, always a phony. So right, her right. phoniness <laughs> on that ridiculous line compounded. It's a ridiculous moment. But the film shouldn't be judged by that bad moment or by or by Ann Baxter's bad acting. It's it's much better than that. That's his worst moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of a great bad moment too. So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, let's let's just kind of go through the book because, as I say, I mean, it's such a massive book and so comprehensive. I mean, I'm sure I will be, you know, whenever I watch something from the fifties, I'll immediately look it up <laughs> in oh, your good, book to, to see to see where it, where it lands. Um, but you start out by going through the state of the different studios at the time, uh, yes. which was all over the place. MGM seemed to be having a nervous breakdown and really never recovered. Uh, Howard Hughes at RKO basically was a walking nervous breakdown for everyone else. Yes. Uh, but on the other hand, you have people like Harry Cohn, who seemed to be perfectly well adjusted to the idea that he would make a bunch of schlock and one or two good movies a year and managed to win three of the best picture Oscars yes, he during did. that decade. Um, so, yeah, where where do the studios stand in that time? They were all under fire because box office had plummeted after the peak years of the war. After the war, television, changing demographics, changing tastes, put Hollywood into a tailspin. They, they lost millions of weekly attendees. And they had to find ways of getting people back in. And it wasn't just television, but that was certainly crucial. Um, as, as the subtitle of the book says, the invasion of the ultimate body snatcher television that did take bodies away from theaters. So how do you get people back? All the studios had to ask that question and try to answer it. New content, spectacle, widescreen, Cinemascope, Cinerama, Tadeo, um, VistaVision, <coughs> 3D. Some worked, some didn't. 
Cinerama was just a, a phenomenon of the 50s. 3D had a, I think, unfairly short cycle, but the robe and cinemascope clicked and changed filmmaking format forever, ever since. Cinemascope, just on a practical basis, seemed to be the best way to get you know, a certain level of grandeur, you know, widescreen uh, yes. epicness into the movies without driving a theater owner nuts. I Absolutely. Mean, <laughs> Cinerama was too large and too expensive. Yeah. And it was hard to tell stories in that huge tripartite screen. It was, it was good for travelogues, but less amenable to storytelling. But each studio uh, had, had to confront the loss of revenue. And as you said, MGM collapsed and never recovered. Fox was the biggest success of the 50s, thanks to Daryl Zanuck and Cinemascope. But after he left, suddenly, for personal reasons in 1956, Fox began to fall apart. And by 1961, it was a pale shadow of the triumphant studio it had been in 53-54. The studios were coming to an end. The studio system was, was going to be finished forever by the end of the 60s. But that nervous breakdown started in the 50s and continued for two decades. Yeah, in some ways, I think uh, Universal had the savviest response to it, which was they basically moved the entire B-movie market over to television, which is kind of a natural place for it to belong. Certainly many of the filmmakers who had been good at cranking out genre movies in a very short schedule uh, adapted very well to television. Well, Universal had some good answers. Paramount was, was really pretty well run in, in the 50s. They, they, they miscalculated with VistaVision. They couldn't sell it. It didn't last. Uh, they should have just adopted CinemaScope. But that was, that was a pretty well-run studio. The only survivor, though, of the old moguls was Jack Warner. Right. who lasted into 67, 68. He was the last man standing, and he had the longest run of any Hollywood mogul. He knew what he was doing. It's interesting. you know. At the end, you talk a bit about Disney, and of course now Disney is the dominant studio. Um, but I don't know, Did Walt, Walt kind of didn't count as a mogul for much of that period. No, he didn't. He didn't. He was uh, sort of off to the side. Um, and of uh, uh, but it's ironic, isn't it, that Walt Disney himself was extremely conservative, and the new Disney is extremely woke. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, could, it couldn't be different. It bears no trace of the original uh, sensibility of, of its founder. I think he'd be shocked yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the political positions that, that people under the Disney umbrella are taking today. He was one of the most conservative of right. all of the founding fathers of the industry. Well, and that leads to an interesting point that you have about, and also about things like Cinerama, um, is just that there there was a real, I don't know, kind of chamber of commerce, you know, America first. Uh, I shouldn't say America first because that brings back the 40s. But, you know, America, the smartest and best run place on the planet kind of attitude that you got it you know cinerama famously anagrams to american and you know walt walt certainly you know was became one of the leading purveyors of of nostalgia for 
you know, what what America had been. Um, and then Louis B. Mayer constructed MGM in the light of his own idealized vision of America as a kind of Arcadia. He was an immigrant like the other moguls, and he was very proud of having been assimil- an assimilated American, Jewish, but he didn't emphasize that, right. um, and uh, wanted to be American. And all of these patriotic moguls were Republicans. It was a <laughs> Republican-run industry in the 50s, very different from today. couldn't be more different. Right. <laughs> But I can tell you the Republicans made a heck of a lot better movies than the guys who are running the industry today, whatever their politics. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the effect of Cinerama. I don't know. What else do you think about these uh, these sort of attempts to change what movies were for, in terms of format? And I, I, I liked, uh, at the time when I was just starting to go to the movies, and in historical retrospect, I liked all the new technologies. I think 3D was dismissed much too soon. I love 3D. I realize not every film should be made in 3D, but for the right films, 3D enhances the image. It intensifies it. it composition in 3D can be beautiful. Look at Dial M for Murder, Hitchcock's masterful use of 3D. Yeah. But they pulled the plug. The first 3D film was 52 by 54. It was over. I don't think they gave it enough chance, but people still complain about 3D. The glasses, the added <laughs> right. expense. It's still not popular. <laughs> it kept, yeah. You know, it, it's revived, and it, it always seems to fizzle out. Yeah. But I thought the, the evolution into widescreen filmmaking was inevitable. I know there's some who really objected to the new uh, screen ratio. They liked the old Academy boxy ratio. I think it depends on the subject, but widescreen filmmaking can be very artful if it's used properly. Yeah, now it's interesting. I mean, you just did a screening of Bad Day at Black Rock, which I think is, you know, is very early in the widescreen uh era and kind of shows some of those flaws they're still working on it or you know i think of the uh the line that it's only good for uh funerals and snakes uh but i but i don't agree with that i think bad day at black rock is beautifully composed well i think it's interesting i mean the first thing you see in it is a train which again is the perfect uh widescreen uh <laughs> subject matter um but yeah, I mean, it seems it seems to be getting to the idea of how you place people naturally on this long rectangle. Well, it, what's interesting is there are many shots in the film with five, six, seven, eight figures in the frame spread out across the screen. It makes sense for what the film's about because the film's about a group psychology a group of people complicit in a crime that they've tried to bury. So when you see seven people in the frame, it says something about the dynamic of the of the citizens of, of Black Rock who were complicit in a wartime crime. Right. It makes sense. You know, form and content support each other. Yeah, no, it's uh and it's interesting that I mean I think it is aesthetically different because you know the the one thirty three to one frame 
is really good for those huge looming close-ups that sort of disassociate you from the background. I mean, if the screen yeah. is, screen is filled with Ingrid Bergman's face, what else do you need? And widescreen does, as you say, kind of take us to this idea of much more of staging people within an environment. Within an environment. So what becomes important is the mise-en-scene. And close-ups can work in widescreen, but sparingly. And contemporary directors, and I'm looking at you, Christopher Nolan, <laughs> misuse the widescreen by insisting on a series of boring and repetitive close-ups. Yeah. You don't use the widescreen for insistent close-ups. You use the widescreen for long shots. What's ha what happened to the long shot in contemporary filmmaking? Gone. Yeah. You rarely see them anymore. Well, it seems like directors expect they're going to wind up on TV anyway, so they're really shooting for that size. They really are, but they're misusing the widescreen. Right. They're misusing the potential of the widescreen for, for psychological interactions of the kind we're talking about with Bad Day. Now, part three of your book is called The Red and the Black, and uh, it's an interesting amalgam. I mean, part of it, obviously, we've got the Red Menace, we've got the Blacklist, all those things, uh, you know, and how Hollywood reacted to that, that I think nobody now would consider particularly honorable or even wise under the circumstances. No, but, but I try, I do, tr I start with the Waldorf statement, I do try to explain why the founders signed on to the idea of a Blacklist. Yeah, well, tell, tell us what the Walters There were reasons. Were. There were reasons. First of all, most of the founders were Jewish. There was in the popular mind a connection between Jewish people and communism. They were Republicans, but they were very aware of the left-wing uh, impetus among many Jewish Americans. So they wanted to dissociate themselves from that. They were afraid of Washington. Washington was a more powerful entity than Hollywood. They were kings in their own domain, but they were subservient uh, to political figures from Washington. They did not want Washington to start telling them what the content of their film should be. And they were afraid if they didn't go along with the anti-red impetus from the, the committee, that they would that their their industry might be invaded. Wall Street told them to to sign on to the blacklist. So, so there were economic reasons. They acted in a cowardly and fearful way. They should, of course, it's easy to say now, don't agree to a blacklist. That's un-American. But if I can understand in the time and place where they were why they reacted as they did. It's easy to step back and say, we will not, absolutely not cooperate with anything like a blacklist. That's a purist vision, and things aren't that pure and simple. I understand why they did what they did. Not, I'm not um, condoning it. I'm trying to explain it or understand it. Yeah, what was the, the quote from Nick, Nick Skank that's like, uh, we would never support a blacklist, but I'm not going to keep any communists on salary. Well, exactly. Wait, isn't that a blacklist? And, 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 yeah, well, exactly. But what people who didn't live through the 50s don't understand is there were communists in Washington and in Hollywood, 
And there was a real fear in the early Cold War years of communist infiltration and takeover. It was a fear that the communists were going to infiltrate us and take over our government. And so the animus against communism was genuine. They really feared and hated the communist ideology and thought of Russia as the other place, a terrible, a terrible government. But you know what? They were right. Yeah. Talk to anybody <laughs> who's lived under a communist government. Would you want to live in a communist country? No. The people who supported communists were on the wrong side of history. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, they right. were not heroes. They were very mistaken. Right. It's We want... You know, we want communists who keep it to themselves. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like they, they can work, just don't actually, you know, advocate they they, for it. The moguls did not want to fire anyone for political reasons. They didn't. And they, Louis Mayer would call people into the office and say, stop this. We want to protect you. Dissociate yourself from, from communist uh, uh, groups and, and, and sympathies. We want to protect you. But Louis B. Mayer really was a a sincere and committed anti-communist. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that the, you know, then this, the reflections of the Blacklist era sort of make it into genre filmmaking. I mean, I think, you know, we, we know a lot of uh, science fiction films, certainly, that have some relation to you know, the, the Cold War and the controversies oh, absolutely. of that time. The best, the best of them are, are, are very potent reflections of Cold War anxieties, invasion of the body snatchers, thing from another world, them, the day the Earth stood still, it came from outer space. They're, these all are films about, at some level, um, the Cold War and, and the communist other. So the, the, the science fiction films that used... The, the Red Scare as metaphors and allegories were from a variety of political perspectives. They weren't all reflexively right-wing. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, and then also, I mean, other genres, there, there are some noirs that kind of reflect it, maybe more westerns than noirs. Uh, westerns, for sure. Yeah. High Noon, yeah. preeminently. High Noon, Johnny Guitar, things like that. Absolutely. Johnny Guitar. Uh, uh, films that people probably don't know, Terror in a Texas Town. Right, yeah. That's a, that's a left-wing allegory, and so is Silver Load, uh, a film that people don't know very well. You know, B-Western, that really reflects um, progressive politics of that period. Yeah, it's funny, you know, there's so many Westerns, and, and whenever you want to, like, give a list of movies that, have been absolutely forgotten in the book. It's pretty much all westerns. You know, it'll, it'll suddenly be a whole bunch of places called the Duel at, or you know, yes. can, Canyon something, or you know, yeah. I mean, forgotten films, westerns. It's because westerns are hardly made at all today. But contemporary viewers might be surprised at all these western titles. Those westerns were popular in the fifties. A-list films like Shane and High Noon and The Searchers, but bottom of the barrel second features. Right. You know, Audie Murphy westerns that nobody remembers. Those were big sellers at neighborhood theaters. Yeah. I just watched, uh, I had actually never seen Audie Murphy in a movie, and I just watched uh, a box set of three of them that uh, Kino put out. 
And I thought it was fitting that the best one, No Name on the Bullet, was written by Gene Kuhn, who wrote a bunch of Star Treks. And there's something very similar about, you know, the the setting of the Western town and, you know, the stranger comes into it and how the locals react. There is something sort of, I don't know, almost abstractly theatrical about the way Westerns play out in a way that science fiction also tends to do, so... Yeah, no, that's it. That's interesting. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know that writer you just mentioned, but uh, I'm sure what you're picking up is accurate. Audie Murphy is not bad, you know. Yeah, no, he's pretty good. It also made me understand <laughs> at long last what the hell Ricky Nelson was doing in Rio Bravo, because he's kind of got the same, you know, short guy, high pitched voice, but nevertheless projects confidence in his you know, shooting ability and stuff like that. Yes, one of my least favorite films. I, I saw that. Okay, so you're, <laughs> you know, the world is sort of divided into the high noon people and the Rio Bravo people. And I'm, I'm, I'm a high, high noon, noon person. <laughs> right. I don't see how you can like both because Rio Bravo <laughs> was made consciously as the anti-high noon. And it has my vote as the single most boring opening scene in movie history. Dean Martin drunk in jail. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I see, you know, it makes sense for Hawks. I mean, his films are so much about professionalism. You know, it's the it's the crew of scientists in the thing. It's the crew in the fly, you know, flying in Air Force. Um, and it's the pyramid builders in Land of the Pharaohs. Right. I mean, it can, it can go pretty darn far. Right. Exactly. Yes. It was also under the impetus of John Wayne, right. who was really offended by High Noon, thinking, well, any American town would, of course, come to the help of the sheriff. It's un-American to say otherwise. Right. So we're going to show you a group of people who help a sheriff if, if he doesn't ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, as you point out, ironically, it was Wayne who accepted Gary Cooper's uh, Oscar for High Noon. Yes, and he was a good sport about it. Yeah. You talk a lot about actors, I mean, not surprisingly, actors in films in the period. I mean, it's interesting to me that masculinity changed so much in that era. I mean, we had explicitly... I mean, not explicitly. We had stars who we now know to have been gay during the time and playing very, you know, typically playing very sensitive roles that nobody would have played in 1942. Um, And also, I mean, I think so much of that is owed to the influence of theater. You point out that, you know, there was never a time that more plays wound up being filmed than, you know, in the 50s. 50s. And, you know, particularly... Well, Broadway was in much better condition then than it is now. There were a lot of really good plays that were turned into movies. So there was a Hollywood-New York nexus that has never had the same intimacy since. Right. And also, I mean, there's just there are people like... I mean, you could, you know, a guy named Tennessee Williams could never have pitched a script called A street, Streetcar Named Desire to a studio. But never. coming from Broadway... You know, then suddenly the movies are interested in something like that, interested in a suddenly last summer in a, you know, cat on a hot tin roof, even if to some extent they bowdlerize them. Yes, to some extent. But but there's a, a terrific uh, rate of adaptation of Broadway successes. Lots of plays turned into movies. Some of them not don't work so well on film and some of them do. 
you know, and, and they just, I think they reflect a, a different sort of masculinity, you know, which in William's case is explicitly a gay sensibility. But I think even in, in other other playwrights, you know, William Inge or whoever, you know. You also have, gay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but I think less about projecting it, but still or reflecting it in, in his approach to writing. And yet, you know, it's, they're just differently done than 40s movies, say. And and a, a heightened emotionalism that I think comes from the method and the actor studio founded in 1947. So actors like Montgomery Clift and James Dean and Marlon Brando, who were more explicitly emotional or had a, a richer inner life than the Gary Coopers and the Clark Gables of the earlier period, the, the more stalwart uh, Hollywood hero. These guys were less stalwart. There was churning going on. Another example of how the 50s is not this period of bland conformity. These guys were neurotic. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. The idea that you had a, a troubled inner life, which you would work yes. out in the course of the movie. I mean, I and, suppose... and it was a man. It wasn't a woman right, who was right. all caught up in emotion. It was a man who was tormented and had an inner life. That was something new in the post-war period. Yeah, I think it's funny that you you know you you talk about the method and and the people who were trained in that right after talking about. Uh, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and Catherine Hepburn, who seem like the, you know, the unstoppable armor-coated uh, <laughs> female stars of another time, uh, who kept on right through the fifties and beyond. <laughs> right, they're determined to never age, never uh, cease being, you know, the the dominant female characters that they were. Well, I think it, it, certainly in the case of Betty Davis, she welcomed. Aging. She didn't pretend to, to stay young. Uh, Joan Crawford had more of a problem getting right. old on film. Um, and, and Catherine Hepburn maintained her image throughout her entire career, that same image. Right. It's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of was like cheering as you're, <laughs> you're talking about how boring Hepburn could be. I mean, I, I love a few of her films in that time, you know, Summertime, certainly, and things like that. But, geez, you know, I, I, she could just she just so, run roughshod over everything with her persona so so mannered so such an irritating woman <laughs> I, w I would not have liked her in the real world <laughs> just just uh, ir irritating I was expecting some of the reviews to say this author dares to say he's not a Catherine Hepburn fan right. <laughs> not one review has mentioned that and in fact I've been getting some feedback of, well, you know what? She is sort of irritating, and she seems dated now. My students don't like her. Of all the uh, Golden Age stars whose films I show, she is by far the least popular. And the most popular and the one who seems most modern is Barbara Stanwyck. Huh. They don't see her as dated at all, whereas the, the students tend to find Hepburn dated now. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that you know there's a madness to Hepburn that you know you can easily be allergic to, but you know what was I forget who said it, but somebody said of of uh, Stanwyck, I think that that she never she never won an Oscar because she was never false on screen. Never, right? Yeah. And, you know, never. And, I, 
and if I right now if I think of like fifties movies, um, you know, sort of the ones that really get good at at the uh, you know capturing the id of the era in some way, I think of the two movies that she made with Douglas Sirk, uh, All I Desire and There's Always Tomorrow. Terrific. Yeah, and they they just absolutely terrific. And they really seem to to reflect something real about middle-class married life. There's Always Tomorrow is really, I think, very solid about 50s marriages and how the husband feels. The husband and father feels sort of isolated within his own family. Um, You know, if you look at Russell Meddy's cinematography for that and how he sort of bathes McMurray in a pool of shadows in the middle of a bright living room and stuff like that, you know, they're clearly separating him from his family. I mean, he just has a functional role as the breadwinner. Yeah, he's isolated within his family, and Circian, the Circian system enforces that isolation. You see him trapped in window frames and door frames behind the the, uh, the railings of the of the staircase. He's trapped in his own home. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a... It's a superb film. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that I think is so strong about the decade is just you can keep finding things. You know, you may know uh, From Here to Eternity and Bridge on the River Quiet to Death, but that still leaves, you know, still leaves There's Always Tomorrow. It leaves Bud Bedeker's The Killer is Loose. You know, it leaves, leaves all kinds of things. That uh, There's so many discoveries. I mean, some, some of the interviews said, what, what did you discover? I said, well, <clears throat> name any genre. There are films that are discoveries for for uh, for readers and viewers. Films they may might not know of. My favorite discovery, which I've been passing on to people, is a film that's far too little known, but it's one of my favorites of the entire decade. Do you know the Steel Trap? No, I re- I mean I read about it in your book. That was the first I had heard of it. Do you know Andrew L. Stone, the director? Yes, Song of Norway and and uh, things <laughs> like that. Uh, things yeah. like that. But in the 50s, he was the architect of a string of really terrific film noir, the best of them being The Steel Trap. But that, that's a great film. The Decks Ran Red, Cry Terror, The Night Holds Terror, Julie with, with uh, Doris Day. Day. He's, a, he's, he's a terrific unsung master of film noir in the 50s but he does musicals and comedies in the 40s and then ends up with something like Song of Norway in 1970 boy is that a film out of its own time period it seems like it was made in 1935 (laughs) right right yeah no it's it it's odd for sure um and he did another one what was the other big musical epic that he did the Great Waltz. The Great Waltz, yes, because the audiences were dying to see Horst Buckle singing and dancing. Yeah, yes, yeah, right, is. exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, let's see what else. What else did you talk about in this <laughs> quite substantial well, book? Well, um, I, 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 I do talk about genres and the, the genres that were coming to an end, and the ones that were just beginning. I, I talk about. Uh, the original movie musical basically came to an end in the, in, in the 50s. Afterwards, of course, there were adaptations of Broadway successes. But Singing in the Rain, is, for instance, is an original mo- movie musical. Uh, and there were a lot of them, but that was the last period of them. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's some episodes back, I talked to Eddie Muller, and I was saying, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, nostalgia for old movies meant musicals. It meant that's entertainment. And now it really means noir to people. And, it it you does. Know, and how did that it happen? <laughs> you know, it's just funny that noir has lasted. has come up from noir the, the termite territory to become... Absolutely lasted. The, the noir films of the 40s and the 50s seem more modern and contemporary or evoke a contemporary sensibility more than any other genre, I think. It's the reason that, it, that they're so popular because there seems to be something modern, cynical, up to the minute in their tone. Younger audiences get those films. Right, in a way that they are never going to love Doris Day in musicals, I suppose. Never, never, <laughs> never. I did um, a, a, an event, a series of 50s films at the Brattle Theater in um, Boston recently, and one of the films was Doris Day, Calamity Jane. Right. It had not sold a single ticket in advance. <laughs> not one. When we actually had the day of the screening, there were maybe seven people in the theater. It's an interesting film because it's actually an encoded lesbian film, and Secret Love, which won the Oscar, is an encoded lesbian love song. Yeah, yeah. My Secret Love. But what's she singing about? Yeah, yeah. But uh, whatever its appeal was for 1953 has not translated uh, all these years later <laughs> at all. Right. <laughs> So the four genres that were coming to the end in the 50s were the original movie musicals, the classic era of film noir, which comes to an end at the end of the 50s, early 60s, the my favorite, the, um, the epic, the ancient world epic, and the melodrama, which comes to a climax, a triumph with imitation of life, conveniently enough, in 1959. Yeah, I mean, coming to the end of the decade, at the at the very end of the book, you promise another book of, of like this about the 60s. Yeah. Um, which would be interesting to me, because, I mean, I feel like the, the early 60s are very strong. I mean, I think 1962, for instance, is a fantastic year. It's got, you know, everything from Lawrence of Arabia to, to Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Ride the High Country. But after that, I mean, it's it's tough to find many movies not named 2001, A Space Odyssey, that people much like from the 60s. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Well, it, you... the thing about the 60s is a lot of it was basically still the sensibility of the 50s. Sure, yeah. And so the 60s of popular uh, culture of the sexual revolution and the youth re revolution didn't enter films until later in the decade right. uh, with Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and, and, and The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy, the underground or the alternate culture. That wasn't there at the beginning of the decade. Right. But some of those films at the end, you don't think Bonnie and Clyde and Graduate are, are terrific movies and, and Midnight Cowboy? Oh, sure. I mean, those are, but but it's a, it's a list that runs out very quickly, I think. You know, if you look at the things that were nominated for Oscars back then. It's like, how many of those do you really want? You know, who needs to see Charlie again, you know, for instance? Well, for instance, but it, and what's surprising, if you look at the Oscar winners in the 60s, many of them were big blockbuster musicals. Oliver, My Fair Lady, uh, West Side West Story, Side Sound Side. of Music. 
Right. Yeah. No. Those aren't funny. Quote sixties films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a dead genre, it uh, it was pretty successful, but yeah, it eventually but just, they weren't original movie musicals, but they were musicals. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, what started in the fifties, I think many readers will be surprised. Before nineteen fifty, there were all, virtually no science fiction films in American movies. It wasn't until after the bomb that science fiction became a popular genre in the 1950s. Yeah, it's, you know, one of my uh, if only thoughts is that that, uh, Cecil B. DeMille had the rights to When Worlds Collide and, you know, in like 1929, but never did anything with it. And it's like, who knows how different the world might have been if he had done that and it had been a hit, you know, the then there would have been a science fiction genre then, and it wouldn't have just been Flash Gordon. So, it, it, you know exactly. But but in terms of of mainstream fiction films, the beginning is uh, Destination Moon and Rocket Ship XM, which were blockbusters in 1950. Yeah, yeah. No, you you had to. I guess you had to get to a certain period where people knew what rockets were and <laughs> knew that the, the V2 had existed and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and the, the atomic bomb and atomic energy was a very fruitful idea for transformations and monsters and, you know, incredible shrinking man and the right. attack of the 40-foot, was it she 40 feet, 40-foot woman? <laughs> yeah, wh- whatever she is, yeah. Yeah, but your size changes because of uh, atomic energy and radiation and that sort of thing. It was very... Use, very useful for science fiction storytelling. Some of them really great films and a whole lot of schlock. Right. We didn't talk at all about American International and the youth market, but that's a that's a, 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 a large part of. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean, it is interesting that one of the things that happens in the fifties is that the the audience kind of splits for the first time. Movies were pretty much. For the whole family back in the day. Now you wonder how much little kids cared about the travails of Betty Davis and George Brent or something. But uh, nevertheless, you know, the whole family went to the movies and then suddenly you start having teenagers going to their own kinds of movies. And that's, that's, that's a huge change. And I feel like we kind of live in the world that that created. Absolutely. Exploitation which was a big factor in 50s filmmaking, didn't come into play until about 1955. And then from then on, movies made for teenagers became a very thriving industry, a very very thriving market in 50s films in a way it had never been before. The studios, led by American International, figured out that teenagers in the 50s had money to spend, and they would spend it on movies that were about them, more or less. All right, so that's we're getting a little preview of what the 60s book will bring us. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing my book as I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anything else that you want to say about the 50s and what, what people well, should I, see I, or I, why I, they should I hope, care? I hope people will uh, pick up the book with an open mind and be open to revising what preconceptions they may have about the dull stultified 1950s. I think it was, it's, a, it's a terrifically energetic and vital period. And people should remember that the 60s, after all, came from the 50s. Sure. That there's a kind of, that's why I'm doing part two, because the 50s and the 60s do 
are deeply interconnected. Two, two decades that really one flows into the other. So all the rebellion at the end of the 60s, all of that had its roots in the 50s, in the post-war decade. So I, I feel I'm, I'm sticking up for my own decade, <laughs> decade in which I grew up and, and became a, 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 a devoted moviegoer, but also saying um, there are more great movies from this period than any other 10-year period in American filmmaking. Once I had a secret love that lived within Foster Hirsch's Hollywood in the Movies of the 50s, The Collapse of the Studio System, The Thrill of Cinerama, and The Invasion of the Ultimate Body Snatcher, Television, is out now from Knopf. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Bruce Calvert and Foster Hirsch, and to Alan Lewis Rickman. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and you look lovely today, Mrs. Cleaver. <laughs>